Good. Okay, so let's get into this. I want to um, talk again about worship and um, some of the foundations this morning for our corporate worship. So last week we started to, uh, to get into the whole idea um, of this is how we love God. This is how we show our appreciation of Him. This is how we... Um, this morning, I want to just zero in a little bit more on our corporate worship, on how that's supposed to work, on what the Bible has to say about it, how that's supposed to all come together. Because, as you might imagine, you know, God has opinions on most things. And um, because he is God, it's probably a good idea to pay attention <laughs> when God has an opinion on something. And uh, when you... Um, when you look through the journey of God's people through the Old Testament, you see different ways in which God causes people to worship. You know, you've got the sacrificial system and all of that, and you've got um, giving and all of that, and you've got, uh, sooner or later, you've got the tabernacle turns up as the place of worship, the place where you come to actually meet with God, and then subsequently um, David's tabernacle, and then following that you've got Solomon's temple, and uh, you've got this whole uh, kind of journey of worship through the Old Testament, drawing us to um, some, actually I think some really clear conclusions about what God is looking for, and what our journey of worship together should look like. So if you've got your Bible handy, uh, I'm in Acts chapter 15, don't get confused. We've just had a little talk about everything in the Old Testament, and now I'm going to read you something from the New. <laughs> Acts chapter 15, I'm going to start reading from verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Uh, I'll tell you what the matter was in a minute. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the minds of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done among them, uh, among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So in terms of the backdrop to this, there's some issues going on in the church. Uh, Paul and his fellow missionaries ha have been all over the place, planting churches and uh, helping them to grow and installing leadership, eldership, all those sorts of things, so that the church can do its job, can do its work. But hot on the heels of Paul and his team were these guys who are commonly known as Judaizers. Now the principal 
mission of the Judaizers was to follow where Paul was going and to get involved in the life of the church and then start insisting that actually if you wanted to be a Christian you also had to be a fully fledged Jew which meant that men if you you know if you wanted to be a Christian you had to be circumcised and uh, there were all sorts of rules and regulations that they wanted to bring in to the church and so uh, Paul and uh, um, Paul, I'm the the apostles, uh, they gather together in Jerusalem to discuss the issue. And uh, the issue on the table is this. What should we do about what these Judaizers are saying? What, what should we do about this problem? Because Gentiles are getting saved. And is it right for us, you know, if they've been saved by the grace of God, to be imposing these rules and regulations on, on them, which are, are kind of to do with Judaism rather than to do with Christianity? And so the apostles, uh, they sit down, they have this council at Jerusalem, they discuss all of these issues, and they come to the conclusion that you just heard in those verses there, that actually it's not right uh, to impose those things on the Gentiles, because we are saved by grace just as much as a Jew is saved by grace, and so we, if we want to be a Jew, that's fine, you can go through all of that kind of thing, and uh, you can be a, a Messianic Jew, you can be a Christian Jew, that's perfectly good and fine and acceptable but actually if you're a Gentile getting saved you really don't have to put yourself through those things you don't have to submit to those things and then in the middle of that conversation so, so see the big picture here Gentiles are getting saved okay wherever the apostles are going people are getting saved outside of Israel and the church is starting to grow and it's starting to have its impact across the face of the earth and then James stands up and he quotes those verses um, from uh, Amos Amos chapter 9 if you want to find the original and in Amos chapter 9 at verse 9 it says this Amos chapter 9 at verse 9 for behold I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve but no pebble shall fall to the earth all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say a disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth or the tent or the tabernacle of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. In that day... Uh, Amos says now I want you to know that that day is this day that um, you know the Bible says today is the day of salvation what that means is actually that since the cross every day is the day of salvation the day that we live in the day that we are having today is that day what is important about that day? Well, Amos says in that day that God is going to restore David's fallen tabernacle now what does that all mean for us, what, what does the restoration of David's tent have to do with us? Because quite clearly, as far as Amos is concerned, and as far as James is concerned, this is significant in the history of the church. This is important for all of us. David's tabernacle was a place of worship. Uh, David, when he made Jerusalem his, his capital city, he, he wanted to have um, a, a place for God to come and meet with his people. Now, when the first tabernacle was put together in the wilderness under some very explicit and complex instructions from God, it was the place where the people met with God. So if you wanted to inquire of the Lord, you went to the tabernacle. 
If you wanted to worship, you went to the tabernacle. If you wanted a word from one of the prophets, guess what? You went to the tabernacle. If you wanted to give, if it was time to bring your tithes and offerings, where did you do that? You did it at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was central to, the, to life in Israel. And um, when David makes Jerusalem his home time, he wants to build a tabernacle so that God will be there and come and meet with the people. Now, at this time in history, one of the centerpieces within the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had various artifacts in it from the history of Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen to be the place where you met directly with the presence of God. So, Indiana Jones got it half right. Okay? The Ark of the Covenant was the place where you actually walked into the immediate presence of of God. And what had happened is this. When the Israelites went out to war, they would take the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant would be at the front of the armies. In other words, as they went out to battle, the presence of God went directly in front of them. But because they'd been disobedient, and because they had, uh, they had kind of not listened to God's instructions to them, they went out to battle against the, um, I think it was the Philistines, and lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Now, having captured it, the Ark of the Covenant was nothing but trouble for them. It created all sorts of problems with them. So they just, they got rid of it. They, they put it on a cart, they sent it packing. And David hears about this. He hears that the, the ark is, um, uh, is now, you know, we can get it back. We can bring it to Jerusalem. And he's got a tabernacle already and waiting for it. And there's quite a long story there, which we won't go into today, about how he gets the tabernacle back. But the tabernacle comes back to Jerusalem, where it belongs, and into David's tabernacle. And it becomes the focal point of the community. It's the place where you meet with God. It's the place of worship. Now, one of the things that quite, is quite interesting about this is this, that Moses' tabernacle, the original tabernacle, was still down the road at a place called Gibeon. It's about seven miles down the road from Jerusalem. And people were still worshipping, following the rituals in Moses' tent, even though the presence of God was no longer there. Are you hearing me? There was an empty tent, as far as God was concerned. Because God had moved to Jerusalem. God was in David's tabernacle. That was the place where worship now needed to happen. But in this empty tent in Gibeon, there was still worship going on, following the rituals that had been handed down uh, over the years, over the ages. Now, there's a lesson for us there, that we must never get stuck in a place where our worship becomes a ritual, where it becomes something that we do by the book, where it becomes something that the presence of God can be missing from and it can still look the same. Are you with me? If your life look, would look exactly the same if you remove the Holy Spirit from it, I want to tell you, you've got a problem. Because it means the Holy Spirit is having no impact on your life. If our worship would look and sound the same if you remove the Holy Spirit from it, we have a problem. Because all we're doing then is following a ritual and it doesn't have the life of God in it. It doesn't have the presence of God in it. So the first thing that we need to learn from this is that David's tabernacle is important to us in the church today because it teaches us a lesson about the need for the presence of God. That our worship is all about coming into His presence. 
Our worship is all about meeting with him and not coming to a tent which is, which is void of the presence of God and which just has ritual which has been there for hundreds of years which actually, whilst it might be nice ritual and might, whilst the words might be good and whilst it might have been handed down by God in the first place has now become empty and therefore rendered meaningless because there is no presence of God in it. And so the challenge for us is to be coming to a place where we meet in our corporate worship with God. That we find ourselves through taking a journey in his presence, meeting with him face to face. And that's how it's supposed to be. And that's the challenge for us this morning. The second thing that I just want you to understand very quickly before I get into some of the the journey stuff, which is what I want to focus on this morning. But the second thing is this, that David's tabernacle, it seems to me, um, was much more exciting than Moses' tabernacle because it it had much more freedom in it. Uh, There was much more music, there was much more creativity, um, there was much more engagement with the people. Uh, It was a freer, it was a more relaxed place that that drew people into their own um, personal worship and as they joined together their corporate worship around the presence of God. That it was a much more lively place, it was a much more engaging place place and um, you know if you read if you read about David and his character you can imagine why that would be couldn't you I mean you know I don't know about you but I I kind of you know Moses to me has always been a bit like a Winston Churchill sort of figure you know that actually a great leader you know uh, had a lot of wisdom but if you were going to go on holiday, you know, for a couple of weeks, you probably wouldn't want to take Winston Churchill with you. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> he would be a little bit dull. David is much more of a, well, how can I describe David's much more of a um, Robbie Williams kind of figure. <laughs> that actually, you could imagine going on a holiday for a couple of weeks with David and he would run you ragged. He'd be ever you doing all kinds of things. You'd be in the sea, you'd be up a mountain, you'd be paraglide you'll be doing everything because that's the kind of guy David was he, he had a real passion and enthusiasm for life and he had a real passion and enthusiasm for the things of God now he made some big mistakes on the way which kind of took the wind out of his sails a great deal at, at various points but you cannot take away from David this great enthusiasm and passion that he had for the things of God now Moses had that as well of course but it was kind of much more subdued and you know quiet in Moses but David, you imagine, you know, being the life and soul of the party, don't you? Don't you? Yeah. And I think those personalities are kind of reflected in the two tabernacles. That David's tabernacle would have been a much more exuberant place to be with, with um, a lot more freedom. Now, the, the thing about tabernacles and temples is this. That they're not actually there anymore. And in Judaism, there was actually quite a big problem, a big challenge, because if you can imagine, all of life, all of community centered around the tabernacle and then subsequently the temple. Then in AD 70, the, the Romans had a bit of a cob on and they go storming into Jerusalem and they wreck the place. They, they level the temple. They, they completely they desecrate the holy ground. They wreck it. And there is no temple anymore for the Jews to go to worship at. Now, just imagine the effect of that on your average uh, Jew. That actually the thing that was the central 
focus of their life, the thing that was the, the place where they were supposed to meet with God face to face has been completely desecrated and wrecked. It's not there anymore. That would leave you feeling, I would guess, a little bit bereft, a little bit confused, and um, perhaps angry, and not really knowing what to do. But you see, Jesus had already anticipated that. Jesus knew what would happen. He knew uh, that he needed to actually move our focus to the reality of where worship is now. So in John chapter 4, where, Je- where Jesus has the conversation with the woman at the well, we don't have time to go into that. We might do that another week in a bit more depth. But in that conversation with the woman at the well, he moves the place of worship. Because in the middle of that conversation, the woman, and I've no idea why she would say this, because it just doesn't seem to relate to anything else in the conversation, other than she's probably struggling for conversation with this Jew. She's a Samaritan, and she's trying to think of something to say that would kind of keep the conversation going. And she says, well, you know, you Jews say that we're supposed to worship on the mountain in Jerusalem, and we Samaritans, we have our mountain here with our temple here, and, you know, kind of never the twain shall meet. And Jesus says that a day is coming and has now come. So this is the day, again, the day is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship God in spirit and in truth. And the whole thing about worship moved then from a geographical location to the heart. It It becomes something that happens in us rather than at a geographical location. You become, in every sense, you become the temple. You become the place where the presence of God is found. You become the place of worship. And so we don't need now to go to a temple. We don't need now to engage with all the rigmarole that was involved in the temple. But actually we now are the temple. We now carry the presence of God and we can spring into worship at any time of the day or night when we're on our own or when we're together. Because the presence of God is there, because the place of worship is there. And so we don't need to be worried about the fact that there is no temple anymore, but what we do need to do is think about what the temple teaches us in terms of the way we should worship God. Now, God was very particular in the instructions that he gave to the Israelites in the building of the tabernacle, and those same instructions were followed through in the building of the temple. And what I want to do is kind of I've kind of dumbed this down, not because I think you need it dumbing down, but just because it makes it easier for me to teach it and it won't take all day to go through all the rules and regulations and things. But if we can have that first picture up, please, Russ. Um, I want you to imagine this is the temple. Let me stand so I'm not in anybody's way. I want you to imagine that this is the temple. Um, you know, this is my artistic ability is not, you know, as great as perhaps it might be, so it might need a little bit of imagination. But you kind of have the, the, the courtyards around the temple and the main approach up to it. Then within the wall, you've got the temple courts. And then at, at one end of the temple courts, you've got the holy place. So the, the courts are all kind of open to the elements or whatever. But then you've got this a beautiful building at the end, the holy place. And then within that, there is a section which is the most holy place. And the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, would be the place where you would expect to meet the presence of God. Now, what I want us to understand and, and grab a hold of today is this, that you don't just walk straight into the most holy place. You know, when the priests used to minister there, um, only one of the priests was allowed in there at one time. And they used to have bells sewn into their robes. 
so that you could hear them moving around behind because there was a big curtain. You remember the curtain that's torn in two at the crucifixion? That separated the holy place, the most holy place, from the rest of the holy place. And the priests would go behind the curtain, they would have bells sewn into their garments, and they would have a piece of rope around their ankles. And if the bells stopped moving, the bells stopped jingling, then you would assume that the priest had somehow offended God and had died in the presence of God, and so you pulled them out (laughs) on the piece of rope. This is the level of respect and honor that they had for the presence of God. You don't just kind of wander into the temple aimlessly, walk through all the doors and round the curtain and bump into the presence of God. It really doesn't work like that. There is a journey to be taken. Um, If we can have the next slide, please, Russ. Okay, I want to take you through this. I've got, I've got four A's for you, okay? Ascend, access, adore, and uh, abide. Okay? That's just so you know that it's holy. Okay, they all begin with the same letter. Now, our journey into the presence of God, our journey into worship, begins before we actually get into the temple that there is a a process of ascending up to the place, up to the temple where God is. Um, Psalm 24.3 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. On their way to the temple the Jews would prepare themselves for entering the temple. They would remind themselves of this journey. We are ascending the hill of the Lord. If there is anything in me which shouldn't be in me, I should deal with it really before I get there. If I've offended a brother and need to put it straight, I should do that before I get there. If there is something that needs changing in my life, I should change it before I get there. Because as I make my way to the temple, I am going to remind myself of who God is and what he has done and why I have come to worship. In fact, there's a special section in the Psalms called Songs of Ascents. Um, There are 15 of them, Psalms 120 to 134. All begin with a lovely little Hebrew expression which is translated by us, a Psalm of Ascents which basically means these are the songs that we sing on our way to the temple. These are the songs we sing because these songs remind us who God is. They remind us why we are going to the temple. They remind us why we should be worshipping. They start to draw something out of us. They start to create an attitude in us so that when we get to the temple, we're in the right place to begin our act of worship to God. So there is an element of preparation. There is an element of coming with the right attitude, making that journey to the temple so that when we arrive there, we're actually ready to engage with worship and to engage with God. Most of us roll out of bed, grab a cup of coffee, jump in the car because we're late, walk through the door, shake everybody's hands and smile, sit down, and then expect to hit worship at 100 miles an hour, and we're not prepared for it. Hello? There is a challenge for us to come to church prepared. There is a challenge for us to come with our attitude in exactly the right place so that we're ready. So that 
when, the, when whoever is leading gets up and they open up the scriptures, we're already there. I don't have to repeat things because you're all yelling hallelujah so loud. I'm having to wait for you to be quiet before I can read the next bit. I'm not having to you know, encourage you in that or challenge you in that. Actually, you're already there because you've come with the right attitude. That as, as the, the band strikes up, we throw ourselves in to singing these wonderful songs about how great our God is. We don't need any warming up because we did that on our way to church. Because when we got out of bed, we, maybe we read some scripture or maybe we stuck some music on or, you know, on our journey here, we were praying in tongues and allowing the Holy Spirit just to speak to us and touch us. And, you know, if there were things that have bothered us, we got them sorted out before we got here so that when we come here, we can give ourselves completely to God with, without anything getting in the way. Yeah? So there's a process of preparation as we ascend the hill of the Lord. The next one, please, Russ is access. Psalm 100 verse 4. Now listen, this is really key. Psalm 100 verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The message version says this. Enter with the password, thank you. That as we come to the place of worship, that we should be coming thankful for what God has done for us. We should be coming with thanksgiving in our hearts because we have reminded ourselves already who God is. We have reminded ourselves what He has done. We have reminded ourselves what life would be like without Him. And so we come to the place of worship with some enthusiasm and some exuberance and some thanksgiving that just must bubble out of us because we know why we're here. And this is the place that we start. We enter into his courts with thanksgiving. We enter in with praise. Now, I've just put some kind of key things up there about praise. Because we're on a journey here. Okay, so we've prepared ourselves. We've made our journey to the temple. We're making our way through the gates now to get closer to God. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by expressing our worship with all sorts of things that are real expressions of praise. So I mentioned last week the word hallelujah um, means praise the Lord. But the word halal there, the word for praise, means literally to rave. It means to go bonkers. It means, I mean, if somebody is raving, they're not sitting down being quiet, are they? You know? So all of the, all of the, um, exuberant praise stuff. That's what happens as we start to come into the presence of God. That's what should happen when we start to make this journey. So you would expect with praise and thanksgiving that there would be clapping and maybe some shouting and singing and dancing and raised hands and all the things that kind of happen in the courtyard there, the expressions of commitment and sacrifice and cleansing. It's upbeat, it's celebratory, it's enthusiastic. And that's how we come, that's how we start proper our journey of worship together. That's why when the band strikes up on a Sunday morning, they don't strike up with something soft and low, you know, and contemplative. They start with something that really kicks. They start with something that rocks your world. Yes? Because that's where we're supposed to start. It's supposed to be a party. We're coming into the presence of God. We're thankful for everything that He's done. And and with all the enthusiasm and exuberance that we can muster, we make our way into His presence with that. Now listen, I I said this last week, I'm going to say it again because it's important. You might not always feel like that. 
But my experience has consistently been this. That if I come and do the things that I know please God, God comes to meet me. And I might start off feeling a bit fed up and a bit knocked down and a bit downtrodden and a bit whatever. But as I give myself to doing the things that please God, God comes to meet me and my spirit rises. Hello? So this is where we start in this place of exuberance and enthusiasm. Uh, But the next one, please, Russ, is adore. That actually we move into something which is more intimate, which is, which is more, which as we get closer to that intimate presence of God, that our worship, the way we worship together should be reflected in that. So my key words here are things like worship, kneeling, bowed down, quieter, reflective, intimate, slower, simpler, deeper. I often, I often think of it like this, and uh, forgive me if this is a bit too simple for you, but I'm a simple bloke. When, when, I, um, when I was out in, so this would be a great example. When I was out in Burkina in June, um, Jules and, uh, and one of the girls, Philippine, um, came to pick me up at the airport and the rest of the family were waiting back at the house. When I get to the house, it's mayhem. Everybody, I mean, they're preparing for a wedding, don't forget, but they just dropped everything and they all came to greet me. And there's a lot of jumping around and excitement and handshaking and hugging and kissing and all the sorts of things that you'd expect to be going on when you haven't seen somebody for a year and they're precious people to you. All of that stuff is happening and it's exciting and it's loud and all the neighbors are wondering what's going on and kids are lining up outside to see, you know, what's happening here and all of that sort of stuff. It's fantastic. But then it gets quieter because then we get to sit down and we start to have a more intimate conversation. We start to talk about how are you, how's it going, you know, um, what's been happening in the last 12 months. You start to have a quieter conversation. And it's a little bit like that, that we, we come into the presence of God with all this exuberance and enthusiasm and praise, but there comes a point where we must kind of settle down a little bit and just get in a bit closer and have a more personal engagement with God. Are you with me? And that's always, that's reflected in our music. You will notice, um, even if you've not heard any of this sort of teaching before, that when we, um, when we have our, uh, worship times, that it starts off kind of fast and loud and in your face, but there comes a point when it slows down and it mellows out a bit, and the songs become a little bit more reflective rather than kind of hallelujah songs, that we're actually moving into a place where we are engaging more intimately with God. Are you with me? Okay, and then the next thing, thank you Russ, is abide. That actually, we need to get to that place of intimacy with God, and actually, we need to spend some time there. And this is the bit that I would like to say we don't often get to. Um, We don't often get to it because we've not really made the journey. But if we will make the journey, if we come prepared if we really give ourselves to the praise and the enthusiasm and the exuberance of entering into his gates, if we let that take us on a a journey into the quietness of his presence, we should then stay there a while. We should then live in that place for a little bit so that we can hear his voice, so that we can talk to God about the stuff that affects us and so that we can hear about the stuff that affects him. 
So that if we need, if we need a word from God to give us some direction, that's the place where we're most likely to hear it. If we need healing, that's the place where we're most likely to receive it. If we need God to come and change some situations in our lives, that's the place where, you know, we can have that power encounter. Now listen, I know that God, because He is sovereign and because He can do what He jolly well likes, can do these things anytime in any place. And God is not restricted by us. Okay? But what I want you to understand is, this should be a weekly journey for us together that brings us into the immediate, intimate presence of God where things in our lives are touched and changed. That could be something physical, it could be something spiritual, it could be something financial, it could be something relational, it could be all sorts of things. But that place of abiding, where we are staying in a place of worship, where we are listening out for the voice of God, where we're responding to what God says, where we're hearing the prophetic word, where we're hearing some wisdom come out and uh, and be expressed, where ministry takes place. That is, I was going to say journey's end. That kind of implies that that's the end of it, but it's not. But that's the place that we want to get to. That's the place when we come together to worship together. That's the place where we want to finish up. Psalm 134 says, Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And then in Psalm 16 it says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I read a book once called The Secret to a Joy-Filled Life. It was the most miserable book I've ever read. And I'm sure that there were some really good principles and practices in the book, so I don't want to kind of diss it, but it was miserable. And if you, if you want a joy-filled life, if you want to continue walking in that place, regardless of what's happening and what's going on around you, I want to tell you the place that you find it is in the immediate intimate presence of God. And we should be finding that every week. Every week. In fact, we should be finding that every time we come together. We should be making that journey into the presence of God. Because I want to tell you, there is healing there. There is prophetic words there. There's all, Everything that you are looking for from God, you will find all of it there. Now, God can bring it to you at other times and in other ways. Of course He can. But if you knew where the well was and you were thirsty, would you sit down and wait and see if somebody brought you a glass? Or would you make a journey to the well? Because I want to make the journey to the well. Because I know that God will take care of me. I know that God loves me. I know that God will bless me. But I also know that He wants me to come to Him in worship. And if I'm going to find all of the things in God that I want to find in God, I need to make the journey into His presence. And I need to spend some time there having fellowship with Him. Are you with me? Because that's exactly what we're going to do now. Uh, the, The band are going to come back. We're going to spend some time worshipping. We're going to make this journey into the presence of God. And this morning, in particular, as we do that, as we get to that intimate place with God, we're going to gather around the table together. We're going to break bread. And we're going to celebrate together 
what a great God we have. We're going to celebrate together all the wonderful things that he's done for us. Now, listen, if, if you find that you have uh, reached that place ahead of everybody else, then you feel free to just make your way to the table and, uh, and engage with that. Um, we don't need to say any magic words over this. This is real. Are you with me? We don't need to do anything really other than in ourselves acknowledge what this is. This is a love feast. It's a table of remembrance. It's a table of thanksgiving. It's a table where we uh, celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. And, you know, if that wells up in you before the rest of us get to that, you just come and help yourself. I don't want you to miss a moment with God. But we're going to start with some praise. The exuberant stuff. (laughs) We're going to make this journey into the presence of God. And then my hope and my expectation is that as we get into that holy place, that God will do something significant in our lives this morning. Are you up for that? Okay, so let's stand. Father, we want to thank you for all of your goodness. We want to thank you. You are a great God. You have done marvelous things. The world is filled with your glory. Our lives are filled with your glory. And this morning we give you thanks. We give you praise because there's nobody like you. There's nobody like you, Jesus. You are the Lord. You are the King. You sit enthroned in heaven and everything in heaven and on earth is beneath your feet because you are the one, the only, the living God. And we worship you. We bless your name.